This is The Guardian. Hey, it's Michael Safi, and today we have a very different kind of episode. It's about what happened when thousands of crabs started washing up dead on the beaches of northeast England. Our producer, Josh Kelly, reports from his hometown of Hartlepool. Last autumn, the crabs started washing up on the beaches. First around Artleypool and Redcar, then further south. Sharon Bell lives in Musk, right by a beach that seems to go on forever. You can just stand here when there's no one else but you down here, and you've got a gorgeous pink sky and the sun coming up. You just think, oh, like, I can cope with what's going to happen today. Sharon bakes elaborate and incredible birthday cakes for a living, but she's also a really good photographer. Very early one October morning, she set off to take some pictures of the sun coming up, like she always does. It was a beautiful, beautiful autumn morning. Obviously got to the bottom of this bank that we're walking down now and turned the bend. And that's when we saw the devastation that that we did. What what was it? What did you see? Literally, as far as your eye could see, crabs, lobsters, all kinds, all colours, all sizes, dead, dying. There was literally hundreds of thousands, just hundreds of thousands. There was, it would be impossible to put a figure on at some point. They were up to your knees and at some points you were actually up to your waist in them. They were piled high. And the crunching under your feet as you're walking and you're trying not to stand on them, but you can't. There's just that many. You can't not stand on them. It was awful, just absolutely awful. It was like something that you'd see in some, like, a horror film. Most of the crabs were dead, but some were still alive, just about. They weren't behaving as we've normally seen them on the beach. The, a lot of them were on the backs, the legs were twitching in the air, um, looked like they were having a fit, shaking. Uh, some of them that were still on the fronts were trying to crawl, but it was like they were disorientated, couldn't get the function together, how to crawl, so they were falling forward, uh, slipping into the sand. That morning, Sharon and her husband spent four hours at the beach, picking up the dying crabs and putting them back into the sea, trying to save as many lives as they could, barely scratching the surface. We thought we were doing the right thing, um, putting the live ones back in the water, we thought we would, makes me makes my eyes fill up when I think, because I th- I thought we were doing the right thing, and now obviously as time's gone on, I've realised what I was putting them back into. I thought I was helping them at the time because, you know, I didn't think it was going to turn out like it did. There is something majorly wrong, majorly wrong down there. Something changed that autumn on Teesside. Crabs never returned, and a battle began. On one side, the authorities, who have an official explanation for what caused the die-offs. And on the other, an unlikely pairing of local fishermen and environmental activists, who came to believe another explanation. A darker one. From The Guardian, I'm Josh Kelly. Today in Focus, the mystery of the tea's die-off. If you want to see proper Artlepool, go to the Edland. It's the oldest and most picturesque bit of the town and sits on this isolated rocky peninsula 
that reaches right out into the North Sea. So when it's windy here, which it pretty much always is, you know about it. All along the seafront, there are these incredible houses that are basically right on the beach. And in one of them is the Rennie family. Hello, hello. You all right? Hello. How are you? I'm on... First time I meet Stan Rennie, he's just come back from an unsuccessful fishing trip. Oh, bloody hell, I feel terrible interrupting you too. And the three of them, Stan, his wife Lynn, and their grown-up daughter Sarah, who lives next door, are sitting with some friends having their Sunday tea. Oh, really? People have been fishing on the Edland at Hartlepool for centuries. Our family history goes back about four or five hundred years. They've traced it back and they're all fishermen. And, um... and Stan himself has now been fishing for crab and lobster for nearly 50 years. Every morning, Lynn stands by the window, Stan sets out in his boat and steams over the bay. It's only 250 yards away from the front door where I'm passing and uh, she keeps an eye on us and I'm at sea all the time and uh, in bad weather she'll keep an eye on us and when I come in we'll wave at each other and uh, she knows that I'm, I'm in and I'm safe. Stan has had a lot of boats in his time and most of them he's named after his family. Most of my boats have been the Sarah Lynn. Uh, Sarah's my daughter, Lynn's my wife. And Sarah's been going out in the boat with her dad since she was two year old. When I was at nursery, my first day at nursery, I remember it really clearly. Um, everybody got a picture on their peg to represent who they were, and I got fish. That was exactly who I was from a young age, and I remember that as clear as day going in. Um, I don't think I was very happy about it at the time, because I definitely wanted a butterfly. <laughs> <laughs> but it was... Stan remembers the exact day when things changed. The 28th of September, 2021. I had a quite successful summer last year, July, August, end of September. Catches were good. Then all of a sudden, the catches um, started dropping off a cliff. They just dropped off a cliff. Never seen anything like it in my life. Everything just started disappearing. Then the crabs started washing up on the beaches too. And down the coast, fishermen started seeing the same things as Stan. Here's James Cole, a crab and lobster fisherman and the chairman of the Whitby Fishermen's Association. We first started to get an indication from our members that worked along the coast at Saltburn, Redcar and Skinny Grove that they were seeing their pots coming up with absolutely nothing in them. And it even got to a point where Scarborough uh, fishermen were getting in touch. We'd never seen anything like this before in our lifetimes, like. The fishermen from 50 miles of coastline, from Artlepool down to Scarborough, got together at the Fisherman's Mission in Whitby and formed a group called the Northeast Fishing Collective. The room was absolutely full of people, of fishermen and people with fishing businesses asking for answers. The immediate response from the government once it got onto this issue was to say this is natural causes. This is George Monbiot, a Guardian columnist. He was one of the first national newspaper journalists to look into what was happening on Teesside. The line that went out was, these mortalities have been caused by an algal bloom. There are always algae in the sea, and occasionally, when the conditions are right, generally when the water is warm and clear, those algae might proliferate to the point at which they create a bloom. Most of the time, when algae grows in the sea, it doesn't cause any bother. But sometimes it does. Algae can make toxins which kill sea creatures directly. Or if the sea temperature drops suddenly, algae can die, decompose and starve the sea of oxygen. And that's how DEFRA, the government's department for environment, food and rural affairs, thinks the algae killed the crabs. Poisoning or oxygen depletion may be a mixture of the two. They found algal toxins in some of the dead crabs they tested, but their main evidence was satellite imagery, which seemed to show that the water had changed colour around the time of the deaths, which does sometimes happen when there's algae there. But when George first read the DEFRA report, he felt that the evidence was a little bit circumstantial, 
you, you cannot say, because the water is discoloured, it is an algal bloom that discoloured it. And he thought there were other problems with this explanation too. I mean, had it been an algal bloom, you would have seen loads of fish and many other species washed up. But that wasn't what the pattern showed. We saw crabs and lobsters, other crustaceans, dying in very large numbers. The first DEFRA report came out in February this year, more than four months after Stan's catch dropped off a cliff. In the meantime, the crabs hadn't come back and the fishermen were losing their livelihoods. So they commissioned their own marine consultant to look into things. He used freedom of information requests to get hold of the crab tissue samples that DEFRA were analysing. And he spotted something. There's a pollutant called pyridine and its concentrations in crabs sampled by the government in and around the Tees estuary were up to 74 times higher than those found in crabs which have been caught in Cornwall. Pyridine, an hazardous chemical and a known byproduct of chemical manufacturing and the steel coking process. If you've ever been to the Tees estuary, you'll have seen what a weird and wonderful place it is. It's a landscape of sand dunes, salt marshes and mud flats. There are seals lazing around here and there and all sorts of rare seabirds flying about. And then there's the River Tees, which carves through all of that and empties into the North Sea. The river is lined with the most incredible skyline of every industry that sits uncannily next to all the nature. Teesside was once world famous for making steel and building ships, and it still has one of Europe's biggest chemical industries. And over the years, as well as producing wealth and jobs, that industry has also created a lot of toxic byproducts. One thing to say here is that, although things are better now, back in the day, Industry didn't really care too much about what it did with its toxic waste. Often, they just oiled it in the river. The Tees was once known as the most polluted river in Britain. Apparently, 500 tonnes of industrial waste used to be poured into it every day. When was the last time you saw a salmon this far up the Tees? Oh, around about 1921, I should think, or two. What do you think of the state of the river today? It's horrible, sir. Makes me very angry and very sad. There's this BBC documentary from the 60s that talks about kids playing on the sands near the estuary and coming out in blisters. What did the boys look like 24 hours after they'd been buried in the sand? It's absolutely repulsive. Are they scarred today? Yes. Yes. How do you feel about this? The industry, isn't it? Surely they realise that some of the things that they are tipping are toxic. I spoke to a man called Peter Race from Mask, and he told me this wild story. In the 70s, he was given the job of organising boats to carry scientists up the Tees to investigate the state of the river. One of the things they did was take samples of the mud on the riverbed. They first put on um, these lightweight surgeon's gloves, I call them, covered them with a pair of heavy-duty industrial gloves, they put an apron on, they put goggles on, they put face masks on, all to get about a mug full of mud out of the riverbed. In fact, they spilt some on the boat one day and they said to me, get it off quick, bucket of water, get it washed through. It's extremely toxic and it does not want to be in your boat. In fact, the senior scientist just said, This mud must never be disturbed. Well, that's exactly what the independent marine consultant, commissioned by the fishermen, thinks happened. Pyridine, which could have come from any number of companies along the river, had just been sitting in that mud, maybe for decades, and one day it was inadvertently stirred up through a process called dredging. 
as rivers flow down into the estuary or the sea, they deposit the mud and the sand that they're carrying, and that can make your ports shallower. And so in order to ensure that ships can still pass in and out, you need to be regularly removing the extra deposits. The hypothesis is that a dredger or dredgers working in the Tees estuary dug up sediments containing pyridine and possibly other toxins, dumped these quite legally offshore. There's a, there's a dumping zone designated for depositing those sediments. And then the currents moving southwards down the coast of Yorkshire spread a plume of those toxins along the seabed. The idea that all of this was going on in the sediment on the seabed, where crabs and lobsters spend most of their time, maybe that would explain why it mainly killed them and not other sea life. At around the same time as these two conflicting reports came out about what had caused the crab deaths, one saying algae, the other saying dredging, something else started happening on the beaches at Teesside. I'm Sally Bunce, I'm 53. I used to be a police officer until four years ago. Sally used to work on murder and drug cases. Now she rescues seals. What happened was um, I kind of noticed that the seal pups I was rescuing were incredibly underweight and there was not a great deal else wrong with them. So, I mean, for example, a seal pup, a grey seal pup, would be born at about 12 to 14 kilograms. And I was picking up pups which were sort of two months old, um, so should have ideally been around 35 kilograms, and there were nine kilograms, which is less than their birth weight. What was, what was it like... Um like finding all of these starving seal pups? Um, it's devastating, you know, because, I mean, there was one time where I actually collected three pups and I took them to the vet and every single one of them had to be put to sleep. And, you know, getting one out of my van, holding it whilst it's put to sleep and going back and getting another one, you know, I put my hands up, I cried. It does get overwhelming and you know we're volunteers um, and you do go home and you cry and you feel like the grim reaper out of probably i think we had about 36 pups born there there'll probably maybe two or three left alive she says that the seals in the northeast always have a higher mortality rate than the national average but what she's seeing now is exceptional so what did you come to think was actually going on here like why do you think the seals were starving they were starving to death because there was nothing on the seabed for them sally decided she wanted to do something about this she'd seen that the fishermen were holding meetings so she went along to a few to begin with it was a bit awkward Seals and fishermen don't really go together. And I have to admit that they did heckle me at first, you know. <laughs> but we've kind of grown this mutual respect now. James Cole and Whitby, by the way, tells a similar story. <laughs> yeah. There's a big room and uh, she come in among a, a bunch of burly fisher folk and we haven't necessarily been lovers of seals. But when she come up and spoke in front of everybody, it really galvanised everybody. Sally and the fishermen formed an unlikely team. They told her about their hypothesis that pyridine had been dredged up, and she decided she would try to use their skills as an ex-cop to help them look into it. All right, fine. Hello, Houndy. Good. Sally's house is, maybe unsurprisingly, an hive of animal activity. She's got a budgie, Dave, two chickens, and three dogs, all rescues, all were really great human names. Mo, Tess, and my personal favourite, Mickey. from Romania three years ago and spends his entire life stealing food now, don't you? Just in case it's your last meal. She takes me through some of the documents she and the fishermen have got their hands on over this past year. Well, I have a massive wad of documents. Even before the two reports came out, 
The fishermen had their suspicions about the specific way that dredging might have caused all of this. The Arbor Authority, PD Ports, usually uses two of their own dredgers to keep the channel deep enough. But in late September of 2021, just before the crabs started dying, fishermen spotted an unfamiliar dredger working in the area called the Orca. Every vessel is basically linked to a satellite and its tracks are, are mapped and you can apply for historical data. So this is the UK Diorca going in and out 52 times over 10 days, removing from PD ports, it turns out, had brought in the Orca because they needed to deal with a slippage of material from up the river and one of their own dredgers was out of action. I actually requested again under a freedom of information request, asked for how much the UK Diorca actually dredged during that 10 days and it was 148,000 tonnes. 148,000 tonnes over 10 days is highly unusual and that's what the issue is. All that came out of one location which will have gone quite deep and we believe that's obviously exposed pyridine. PD Ports has recently agreed that this dredging activity was more intense than usual. The amount they moved with the orca in 10 days would usually take them 20 days or maybe a month if they were using their own boats. But, they say, it's not the first time they've done this kind of intensive dredging. And it's basically just a coincidence that the orca was doing that at exactly the same time the crabs started dying. In the end, DEFRA's final report ruled out dredging as a likely cause. The first line explaining why says, quote, Samples of dredge material must meet the highest international standards protecting marine life before it's permitted to be disposed of at sea. So Sally tried to figure out exactly what that means. So one of my first freedom of information requests was to the Marine Management Organisation who, who issue... The first document she shows me is this one which says that, basically, they don't actually have to test the material itself every time they dump it at sea. Instead, as a general rule, every three years they take a sediment sample from various locations along the river. And if those samples are okay, then you get the green light to keep dredging. Then there's this other document. About those samples. She shows me a bar chart and this big, thick, horizontal red line. And anything above that line is too toxic, according to the guidelines. Basically, that line there is what anything shouldn't be above. And I found this pretty shocking the first time I saw it. Most of the samples from around the estuary just burst right through the red line. The chart's explained in numbered paragraphs. Number 14 here said, viewed in isolation, these results will preclude material from continued disposal at sea. So that tells you that even at surface scraping, this stuff is too toxic to go to sea. But then it goes, however, it's essential to consider the local and regional context. The Tees River, as with other northeast rivers, has a documented history of specific industrial activity, which has led to a noticeable presence of both man-made and natural occurring contaminants. So number 17 then says, this is the actual conclusion considering the results in both the local context of the tees and in comparison to previous year's data that results presented for this review do not preclude uh, material from continued disposal at sea so whilst they've said that the stuff exceeds the allowed limits they've now said because they're applying contextualization in that we have a toxic history of industry they're going to allow it to keep on going to sea In other words, yes, these results are toxic, but this is Teesside. As the months went by, the situation got worse and worse for the fishermen. At his house, Stan introduces me to his mate Paul. He's a lifelong friend, and um, I think I used to take him for a walk in his pram when he was about two year old, but I was only four. <laughs> I was only like Stan, Paul's yeah. entire world revolves around the sea. He's fished with his three sons for their entire lives. I've been a single parent with my three lads for oh, a long, long, long time, and the lads had to come fishing with me. Before the die-off started, Paul's fishing business was doing well, 
and all three of his sons worked for him. Over the year, his catch has been obliterated. We must be 90% down on our crab. We must be 50% down on our lobsters, mustn't we? This year, this year at, at least, yeah. For the year, that's what For you the year, yeah. Uh, velvet crabs, they're non-existent. They just don't live here no more. They've all been killed. The only life we've seen in, in the pots is the whelks, brittle stars, just stuff that lives on death. It soon became clear that Paul wouldn't be able to keep running all of his boats, and eventually he had to let two of his three sons go. One of them, Paul says, has stopped speaking to him altogether. The day he left the boat, I've never seen him since. It seems like all the fishermen I spoke to had to make sacrifices. For Stan, that meant giving up on a dream of going back to an earlier time in his life. A long time ago, Stan and his daughter Sarah used to go out on a traditional northeast fishing boat called a cobble. Cobbles are small, which meant they could get into shallower waters, places where you would normally never get to sea. There's nothing better than going to going to sea at low water when the water's crystal clear and seeing all of that marine life around there. And it, it, it's just great. We just love mucking about in the little boat. Sarah missed that. I missed that. So Stan bought a knackered old cobble and decided he'd make it his project to do it up. Since the crab started dying, Stan's been doing his best to make a living. He's been travelling further away, to places where there's still some life left in the sea. But that means longer days and triple the amount of diesel. Even with all of that extra work, he's still way short of where he was. And it just feels like the dream of doing up the cobble belong to a different time. It's probably going to cost us about another £8,000 to finish the boat off. I can't justify it when I can't make anything in the big boat. And I feel like after spending a lot of time on it and the inside's just about done and a lot of money and effort, uh, it's broke my heart and I feel like setting fight out. That's how bad it's been. The more desperate things were becoming, the more desperately the fishermen needed answers, and the more it felt to them like the authorities weren't interested. Eventually, this new dynamic started to develop, a sense that there was something else going on here. Politics. This is a highly charged political question. That's George Monbiot again. The reason why this is so highly charged and so extremely sensitive to the government is that the Tees Valley is its flagship free port zone. Hi folks, I'm here with uh, Chancellor Ritchie on the day after the budget and appropriately we've come to Tees Port, which is one of the great ports, which is the gateway to global Britain. And, uh, They've created a series of free ports around the country in which tax and regulations will be relaxed, customs requirements relaxed and the rest of it, and that's supposed to stimulate local enterprise. Free port zones uh, have been a huge part of both Boris Johnson and Liz Truss's plans for supposedly revitalising the economy and getting growth going. Yeah, yesterday in the budget we were able to announce that Teesport is going to be the location of one of our eight great new free ports across the country. It's also been an even bigger part of the new Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak's plans. When he was Chancellor, Sunak was the one who announced that Teesside was getting a free port, and he's been up here more than once, having his picture taken, in his eyes, of course. Our country also has limitless potential, and places like Teesside are a fantastic example of that. As Chancellor, I delivered for Teesside, and as Prime Minister, I want to spread that same sense of The bid for Teesside to get a free port was submitted by the Conservative Mayor of the Tees Valley, Ben Ouchen. So here we are on the River Tees. It's a blustery day, but it's a fantastic one for the progress of our region. You'll have known for the last four years we've been fighting to make sure that Teesside becomes the centre of the UK's free port policy. And I'm very proud to say that it's something we delivered on. Back in March, you will remember that Rishi Sunak stood... Now, in order to create this free port, a great deal of new dredging needs to be conducted. The channel needs to be deepened. You have to dig four metres 
into historic sediments, many of which will be stuffed with industrial pollutants. And the birth pocket where the vessels moor up um, has to be dug down to 16 metres. And we're talking then about removing and mobilising huge amounts of sediment. Now, it's important to pause here and make something really clear. Nobody's saying that the dredging for the Freeport actually caused the die-off. The maintenance dredging we were talking about earlier, the stuff PD Ports does to keep the channel deep enough, the orca coming in, doing more intense dredging than usual, none of that has anything to do with the Freeport. It couldn't have done. This Freeport dredging that George is talking about, it only started this September, 11 months after the die-off happened. What George is saying, and what the fishermen are saying too, is that if the earlier maintenance dredging was the cause of the die-off, well, that doesn't bode well for the Freeport project and the huge amount of new dredging they need to do to pull it off. If it is true that the reason for the mass crustacean die-offs that we've seen so far in the Northeast is dumped sediments containing pyridine and or other toxins, then the Freeport works will have a devastating ecological impact. And so from the government's point of view, this is about far more than just local fisher people losing their livelihoods, important as that should be. This is about their whole flagship project being thrown into jeopardy. Now, the Tees Valley Combined Authority says that there's no evidence to suggest that the Freeport dredging will have a significant ecological impact. They say it complies with all licensing rules and regulations, including a thorough testing regime. The dredging they're currently doing for the Freeport on the south bank of the river will be disposed of on land, not at sea. In the next phase, around a million cubic metres of material will be dumped at sea. But again, they say, all of this will comply with the regulations. The Tees Valley Mayor, Ben Ouchen, has said that he's pushing for the government to help the fishermen who have lost their livelihoods. Some of the fishermen and the families say they don't feel supported or get responses to their emails. Some have been blocked on social media. Ouchen has publicly made his views on this clear. DEFRA says this was all caused by algae, not by pollution, and their scientists have no ties to the region, no agenda. He says he's not dismissing anything, He's just following the facts, and there's no evidence for court. A weird conspiratorial cover-up by the agencies. Which is fair enough. But it does appear to be a little bit more complicated than that. The independent newspaper spoke to a couple of government officials who worked on the DEFRA report, who felt that central government put too much weight on the algal bloom theory. One of them said, I quote, we were not confident that the algal bloom was the absolute cause in the manner it has been presented by politicians. The truth was that we did not know for sure and we still do not know for sure. The second truth is that we're unlikely to be given the necessary resources to find out. And perhaps even more damningly, the second person they spoke to, a senior official, said there was clear political pressure brought on us to just find an answer, and then the least politically sensitive hypothesis was given most prominence. We put this to DEFRA, and their response didn't address these specific allegations of political pressure. We were at an impasse. DEFRA had closed down their investigation. Case closed. And the Prime Minister was now following their lead. Uh, I know my, my honourable friend and I were walking together on the, the seafront uh, in Redcar when, uh, when, when I was eating, eating a lemon top, actually, Mr Speaker, uh, when somebody raised this very point uh, with us. And, uh, I, and I can tell him uh, that we've ruled out chemical pollution. The fishermen were increasingly frustrated. They'd protested in their boats at sea, setting off flares and fireworks. 
problem was, nobody seemed to be listening. What they needed was somebody with a bit of clout to look at this again. That's coming up. So my name is Dr. Gary Caldwell. I'm a marine biologist here at the School of Natural and Environmental Sciences at Newcastle University. When the two reports came out at around the same time, the DEFRA one saying algae and the one the fishermen commissioned saying dredging, the story started to get more local news coverage. And it was Dr. Caldwell who ended up being put forward by his university to comment large mortality events down to algae blooms is increasing and we think it's possibly linked to climate change uh, but that, that's not saying that there aren't other factors that may be involved when i was on it i was talking about purely theoreticals you know, both sides of the argument could be theoretically completely correct and and then after that i thought right i should probably kind of contact the fishermen and just kind of explain the position i took and i did and i asked can i see your report out of curiosity and they sent it, and that was it. That was me involved. The Fishing Collective put on a meeting. They invited Dr Caldwell and academics from other northern universities. There was representatives from Durham, Hull and York, as well as a representative of charity, the Fishmongers Company. And uh, we kind of just had a general conversation about you know, the, the, the merits of both sides of the argument. And then towards the end, um, the fishmongers company representative sort of steps up and says, well, I've got a little bit of money. I could help fund and seed a little bit of research if you think you could help. Uh, The prospect of an academic getting someone to do research, not going to turn that down. So the fishermen argue that they believe it was an industrial chemical called pyridine that was responsible for the deaths but there was a big bit of the jigsaw puzzle missing and that the fact there was no toxicological data for pyridine on any big crustaceans, none whatsoever, even going back decades. So I kind of stuck my hand up and said, okay, you can cover our costs. We'll do that. We'll give you the basic information. We'll go in and ask a really simple question. Is pyridine toxic? Yes or no? A few months later, Dr. Caldwell got to work. The basic idea would be to put crabs into different concentrations of pyridine and see what happens. Now, the video I'm going to show you was from one of the top concentrations that we measured, uh, which is 100 milligrams per litre of pyridine. When we put the crabs in this concentration, it, it, I think it's fair to say it completely floored us. I was stood there in the lab with my two researchers either side of me and we were just staring dumbfounded. So more or less immediately that we put the crabs in, they started to have like fits or convulsions would be probably the best way to describe it. And they were very violent and aggressive to the extent that the crabs were doing somersaults in the tank. I've never seen a crab do that before and then they would go into the next phase and they would start to become paralyzed. Now you'll see in a second, the crab will make one kind of final, there he goes, one kind of final effort to try and ride itself, but it's not able to. And then in a matter of time, he'll die. Within six hours, all crabs in that top concentration were dead without exception. As I looked at the video, the crab disoriented, moving its claws slowly, like it was in a trance. I couldn't help but think of what Sharon Bell saw on Mask Beach on that October morning when she was out taking pictures of the sunrise. She said the crabs looked like they wanted to crawl, but they just couldn't. It all matched up. The reports of the paralysis, the crabs and lobsters on their back, the weak, half-hearted attempts to move, and then eventually they die. But it's one thing coming to that conclusion from a lab experiment. It's quite another thing making that stand over the scale as being reported. I went and spoke to one of my colleagues who is a, a renowned marine physicist oceanographer. 
and using the currents and the tides of those given days that the dredging took place, he was able to work out where that pyridine would move either up or down the coastline. What we're seeing here is the model. You can see the date ticking along the top. As time moves on, the currents and the tides will move that pyridine down the coast. You can, you can now see it reaching right the way down to Whitby and it gradually disappears. There was one thing which still didn't quite make sense to me. When Dr. Caldwell showed me the model, by around mid-October, the pyridine was pretty much gone. But what Sharon described seeing in mask happened at the end of the month. How does that work? To answer that, I have to take you back to our toxicology experiments. So now we spent a bit of time talking about what we saw at the higher levels of toxin. So when you come down that sort of pyridine exposure chain or scale, you will get to a point where the pyridine doesn't necessarily kill the crabs in the three days. But what it does do, it brings about partial paralysis. So they're out there in the sea, partially paralyzed, but in effect, functionally dead. They can't look after themselves. They're vulnerable to predation, vulnerable to starvation. So crabs and lobsters that didn't die off in that initial acute wave of toxicity, but kind of survived, they would have been dying more slowly. And that would explain kind of the later wash-ups. So, according to Dr Caldwell, for the first time, we now know that pyridine is toxic to crabs. And according to their model, it would spread down the coast, killing them in a way that matches what happened. But there were still a few questions. Like, is there actually pyridine in the mud on the bottom of the Tees? That fell to his colleagues at York University. And according to their research, the answer is yes. And simply by the fact that we can measure pyridine in those surface sediments that's being diluted, that's being attacked by oxygen, that's being moved into the water, that suggests very strongly that there's a lot of pyridine down deep. The final thing left to look at, and this fell to Hull University, is the algae theory. And here's a twist. They did find that there seemed to be an algal bloom in the area at the time. But Dr. Caldwell still didn't think that that alone meant very much. You can't, from satellite imagery, say your bloom was a particular type and you sure as heck can't say that it's toxic. That's not possible. Because once you try and extend that bit of evidence, you're now into complete speculation, unfounded speculation. For me, it's, it's not something that I give any credence to. At this stage, it's still, it's still theoretical, it's still theoretically possible, but my goodness, there's, there's no evidence to support it. The, the gaps in that explanation, you could drive a car through. Bringing together all of the work that the four universities did, the conclusion was this. The crab deaths are more consistent with poisoning by industrial toxins than by algae. A few days after I first spoke to Dr. Caldwell, he sent me a message saying that there'd been a development in the story. After the research came out, the House of Commons Environment Select Committee emailed him saying that they were considering launching a new inquiry into the mass die-off. After that, Dr. Caldwell noticed that the local mayor, Ben Ouchen, was posting on Facebook about his research, saying, the work isn't finished and it isn't peer-reviewed yet. Both true. But Auchin also questioned the integrity of Dr Caldwell's work. More or less calling me a Green Party activist, which I must admit made me laugh. Because <laughs> yes, I, absolutely, I've got, I'm, I, I don't deny this. I am a paid-up member of the Green Party. But in terms of being active, I, I probably couldn't find a less active member of the Green Party. All I do is I pay my three quid. I don't do anything else. So that, 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 that tickled me, I really have to say. It tickled me a lot. Dr Caldwell said to me that the notion that politics played any part in his research is ludicrous. Not that it matters, he says, 
but he actually supports the Freeport. He thinks the North East needs the jobs. But after everything he's seen in his work, he thinks that we need to take a breath and pause the deep dredging for the Freeport, just until we know for sure what's going on. There is real potential that, whereas the Pyridine will have been, done its thing and disappeared, the chemicals that potentially will be dredged out from the South Bank sediment are going to be a lot worse. You're talking about things like PCBs, a range of heavy metals, other aromatic hydrocarbons. They don't go away. They don't break down very easily. They reside in the system. That is a real problem because you almost can't deal with it. Once it's out there, you almost can't deal with it. Welcome to the uh, sitting of the uh, EFRA Select Committee, looking at the very serious issue, certainly in my part of the world, of seafood mortality off the East Coast. On Tuesday the 25th of October, the Select Committee hearing took place. A group of scientists and MPs sat around a table shaped like an horseshoe and tried to get to the bottom of what had happened. hear that evidence, and it will be an opportunity to test the arguments one by one, the witnesses were called, like a courtroom scene. We heard from a DEFRA scientist. good evidence to suggest algal blooms, plural. And from Dr Caldwell. It didn't make sense why pyridine was dismissed offhand and wasn't explained. We heard from P.D. Ports. That we were doing nothing more than our normal maintenance stretching. And we heard from Stan. And it's not just the industry, and it's not a monetary thing. It's our ecosystem. The select committee wound up and went away to consider all of the evidence. About a week later, the chair of the committee, a Conservative MP called Sir Robert Goodwill, wrote a letter to the Environment Secretary. It said that there is clearly a need for further research on the causes of the die-off and it recommended that the government chief scientific advisor appoint an expert, independent scientific panel to review the evidence for both theories. As soon as the letter was published, Sally sent me a voice note. I just wept with joy and I could hardly read it through the tears, you know, because it's been such a tense time this last week waiting for some form of outcome. And it's a long time since I've cried for joy. It really is. <clears throat> yeah, just amazing. And then Stan and Sarah. I'd like to thank everybody who's been involved in the fight for justice and the truth, and um, everybody who's had an input, everybody who's helped out. I can't thank them enough. Now, you might look at that letter and think, it doesn't definitively come down on one side or the other. But for them, this felt like a massive breakthrough. They'd felt ignored for so long, and now a panel of senior MPs were taking them seriously, recommending a whole new investigation. With the elation, though, there was some caution. We know that it's just um, a, a big moment in a large picture, but one that's not anywhere near complete yet. No, we've still got a lot of work to do going forward and make sure this never happens again. The letter stopped short of recommending the kind of pause on dredging that the fishermen had wanted. It said, yes, the dredging activity in the Tees must be urgently reviewed and that all dredged material from now on should be tested for pyridine. But for now, as things stand, both the maintenance dredging of the Tees and the deeper dredging for the Freeport can keep happening. And Beyond the cautious optimism, there was another feeling too. Something like melancholy. A sense that whatever happens in the future, maybe for them, it's all too late. The final time I speak in person with Paul and Stan, the catch still hasn't improved. And they're running out of time. I, I, I thought I'd be fishing till the day I dropped. Uh... I hope I am fishing till the day I drop, but I keep having to kick myself and tell myself I don't think I'm going to be. Just the way things are. I don't know. I wouldn't know what to get into with another job. And 
I don't want to do nothing else, to be honest. I want to be a fisherman. I always did. I always will do. So, I don't know. It's, it's devastation. You know, some of the joy what the marine life's brought us throughout my life, throughout Sarah's life, bringing her up among it. It's been such an important part of our lives. Um, and to see it taken away, to see that not going to be available to kids Sarah might have in the future or generations from them uh, until this recovers, if it can recover. And uh, it's just absolutely heartbreaking for me, heartbreaking, devastating. That was Stan Rennie talking to our producer, Josh Kelly. We approached Ben Houchin and invited him to give an interview for this podcast. He declined. His spokesperson said, We have complied with the highest legal standards and requirements laid down in licenses and guidance right from the very start. We will undertake all future dredging activities strictly in accordance with the marine license issued by the Marine Management Organisation. He added, there is no evidence to suggest dredging was the cause for the initial die-off. Equally, there is no evidence future dredging, whether maintenance or capital, will have a significant ecological impact. On the suggestion that the sediment being disturbed in the Freeport dredging may contain dangerous carcinogenic chemicals such as PCBs and heavy metals, they said, quote, no evidence has been put forward to suggest this. Testing commissioned by Royal Haskening in accordance with the requirements of the MMO and assessed against their own guidelines permits disposal of the material at sea. The mayor confirmed that he has blocked people on social media but says that some people have issued threats and personal attacks and were continuing to spread misinformation on his social media page. The Harbour Authority, PD Ports, didn't respond to our request for comment. In a recent interview, they said that their maintenance dredging was not to blame for the deaths of crustaceans along the northeast coast. They said the dredged material was virgin sand and not toxic, and that tests of the dredged area found, quote, no issues with regards contamination. Jerry Hopkinson, Chief Operating Officer of PD Ports, said dredging is carried out six days a week to stop the river silting up and had been done, quote, pretty much constantly for more than 40 years. In response to the joint university research, DEFRA said, we recognise the concerns in regards to dredging and we found no evidence to suggest this was a likely cause. There have been no materials licensed for disposal at sea in the area which would fail to meet international standards. They added, this is a complex scientific issue which is why we took a thorough evidence-based approach. We welcome research carried out by universities and will continue to work with them, including studying this report carefully. We are aware that there have been some localised reduction in catch rates and we are continuing to monitor shellfish populations in the area. And that is it for today. This episode was presented and produced by Josh Kelly. Sound design was by Axel Cacoutier. The executive producers were Phil Maynard and Elizabeth Casson. And we'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian. 